0: everyone? Well, Adrian has been nothing less than phenomenal throughout all the time that I've known him. He's an amazing speaker. He's an amazing teacher. I guarantee by the time you leave this webinar, you will feel you know a lot more than you ever had or you ever did about AI, about data, about technology. I first met him at another conference. That we both spoke at at which point he was chair for business in the community and business in the community runs a campaign called race for opportunity and he was talking about that so he was chairing business in the community which is a prince charles charity and he's still very much involved with that the next time that i remember being in contact. I mean, we kept in contact for a long time. That wasn't his full-time position. He was actually at Google. And that was the very first time I was invited into Google's headquarters at Tottenham Court Road in London. And then later on, Adrian invited me to speak at a couple of the Google Black History Month events. Adrian went on to work at EY, another huge company but I think it was last year or the year before, um, he's moved to BT. During that time, he's incredibly supportive of charities that support young graduates to learn more, to be more involved with corporates and have an idea of what it's like being at a corporate. And Adrian will probably mention a bit more the fact that BT are sponsoring Alito, which is another foundation that works with young graduates. Adrian recently became an OBE. And with that, can I ask Adrian Joseph, OBE, to join me on stage?
1: It's such a delight to be here, and thank you for inviting me. I hope I live up to that introduction. I have always enjoyed working with you and partnering with you and was a trustee on the Alito Foundation as well for five years alongside you so I know how brilliant the work is that you do and how committed you are to everything that you do so thank you for the introduction so I thought maybe I'd tell, tell the audience a little bit about me
0: before you get into that I'm going to officially welcome you Hi. and say Adrian Joseph this is your wind trade global talk the stage is now yours
1: I had a, a very unusual path to where I've got to now I did very well at primary school but then had a lot of fun when I went to secondary school. And I remember coming home to my expectant parents and my dad was from Trinidad and Tobago. He met my mum, who was from the UK, at university in Leeds. And he was the first person in his family to go to university. He'd got a scholarship in Trinidad and Tobago. And he was a finance director. And my mum was a university lecturer. When I, I came home back in the day when these things were called O-Levels, not GCSEs, like many of you probably know. And they said, how did you get on? And I said, well, a little bit underwater. And I said, what what do you mean by that? I said, well, all of my grades were at sea level or below. I graduated with four Cs at GCSE, and they were not that impressed. I was the eldest of six kids. They had expected better than that from me. And they were even more disappointed when I said that I don't want to go and repeat. I, I want to be in the real world and to start working. And you can imagine the reaction that, that I got, but in the end they accepted it and said, look, if your heart's not in it, then you know this is the thing for you to do. So I then went off, worked in a bank for about 18 months as a teller, saw how much money other people were making and decided to start up my own business I managed to convince a bank manager, a friendly bank manager, to lend me all of the money to buy a truck. And I was working in Trantobago, driving around the country, delivering everything from chickens to paper products to a host of things. And my business did very well. Again, I had a lot of fun. And then two things happened that changed the course of my life. One was that the economy tanked and my business went flat. And the second thing was that my father died instantly in a car accident. And it was at that point that I realized that two things, I didn't have any educational background that would be an insurance policy for me for the future. And I, of course, couldn't depend on my parents to help me. You know, so I I then got back into education. I was ready for it. I did a two-year diploma in hotel management in Trinidad-Tobago. And then I came back to the UK did my degree in econometrics at Manchester University and then went straight on to do my master's in business administration and graduated with the distinction again from Manchester Business School. And the reason they, they let me do that was because of the experience that I had in running my own business. They wouldn't normally allow you to do, go from a, a first degree to an MBA at a good school. So this was a really tough time. This I graduated in 1992. Uh, I had to applied for 250 applications. In the end, I got offered two jobs, one with, with Barclays and the other one was with Ford Motor Company. And I joined Ford Motor Company. And I was there for uh, six years doing a range of jobs, looking after the big dealers, sales planning and paralysis, as, as I called it. But it was a great grounding in, in analytics. And then I moved on to running the brand team for large cars and sporting performance cars. I then moved on to A.T. which is a, a strategy consultant. I was there for six years. I went in as a very much an automotive sales and marketing person. And six years later, I had left with a much more rounded portfolio of skills. I had worked in many different industries. I worked at BP. I worked at Ericsson. I worked at Reuters. I would worked in supply chain management, in strategy, in transformation. So I, I left A.T. six years later joined the board of a small UK PLC called Traffic Master in the satellite navigation telematics space. I joined as the board member for sales marketing and product development. I did that for two years. And then I I got a call from a headhunter representing Google. And you know I said, look, I, I love your brand, but I have I have no idea what I would what I would do for you. I didn't even know that you kind of hired people like me, right? You're a technology company. Anyway I had about seven interviews. The last interview I had, it took a while to set up, was with uh, the head of the region who had just had a a young child. And she said to me, we didn't do it face to face. We were on a phone call. She said, I'm really sorry, but if you hear any sort of gurgling in the background, it's because I'm feeding my baby a banana at the same time as doing this interview. And I I thought, wow, what, what an amazing place. I naively said to some of my friends, you know, I said, What do you know about Google? Is this is this a company that's gonna really have a future and stuff? But anyway, I I joined my son. I have three kids. Um, my eldest son said to me, Dad, again, I had two options. I had Nokia and Google. He said, You've got to go to Google, it's really cool. They they change the you know the the front page of the website and all sorts of things. So so I made that decision. I was there for ten and a half years. I worked in the ads business, I worked in in the cloud business. I was the MD of the Google Cloud business across EMEA for just over two years. I had headed, headed up search advertising, which is the, the thing that makes the, the real money at, at Google, certainly did at the time. And I also worked in analytics and, and data science. So I had experience in ads, search platforms, and in analytics. I got to the stage where I was thinking, what, what do I do next? Either I spend the rest of my career at Google or I do something different. And if I had been offered the job to as MD of self-driving cars for Google, I might have stayed. But I met the very nice people at EY. It was just for a coffee, and then it was a bite of lunch. And the next thing I knew, I was signing and joining EY. And that was an unusual move, right? To get somebody from uh, Google to move into one of the big four uh, companies as a direct entry partner was you know, a degree of risk for both me and for EY. There was a risk of organ rejection either way but i did that for 3 years i led the data analytics and ai practice in financial services across the uk i led ai across uh, europe and sat on the innovation board again i had a, a really really great time again i was headhunted into that role and then i was I had a call i guess about Two years ago, almost to the day from some other headhunters about the the job at BT and sort of seven months later, final interview with the chief exec who was relatively new, I decided to join BT to lead as MD as data and, and AI solutions. And the job that I do and the job of the team that I lead is essentially to look at all of the data and AI assets at BT and figure out how do we turn those into new revenue and profit streams. And so I am literally a startup in the midst of this 120,000 person business, you know, with a relatively small team that is destined and and intended to drive net new revenues outside of our core business. So my job is to hunt unicorns, essentially, and to turn artificial intelligence into new revenue streams. I've also done a lot of work in, in the charitable space which Yvonne has mentioned I was the chair of the Race Quality Board for five years. I continue to serve as an advisor to business in the community. I mentioned Alito, I was delighted to have been involved and I continue to actively support the Alito Foundation and BT is one of the big partners of Alito. I've also done a lot of work in the government space, so I was on the board of the Home Office for four and a half years. I sat on the Race Board and also on the Data Board And I was also on the board, the main people board for the government, helping them to think through diversity, inclusion, skills, the future of the workforce, the impact that AI and automation would have on the civil service and the government more more broadly. I mean, I I continue to serve the government. The Prime Minister recently uh, approved my appointment to the AI Council. The AI Council is a team of 20 people, all volunteers, who help to keep the UK at the forefront of artificial intelligence. And then in my spare time, I'm a non-exec director on the board of Direct Line Group, which is a big insurer in the UK, and it's a FTSE 110. So that's a little bit about me. I have many passions in life. I love fine wine. I love mountain biking. I'm a bit of a speed junkie. I love my family, fine food, and the dogs. But they are three Ds that I think really define me and the work that I do in my day job, in the charitable work that I do and also in the work that I do with the government. The first D is data, and how do we turn that into insight that drives business value and societal value. The second D is digital disruption, and I spent a lot of my career at Google, at EY, and now at BT, helping to drive digital transformation. And the third D is diversity and inclusion, and diversity of thought is a thing that I really fixate on. But quite often, we need, we need to use physical proxies and dimensions that help us to do that, of of gender, of ethnicity, of disability, and so on. And inclusion is a leadership style, so that's how I think about it. So that's that's my journey. Those are the three Ds that I think define me and I'm really, really passionate about. And I'm excited to be talking to you about the first of those passions, which is really about data and artificial intelligence, Imagine a world where, I mentioned I was on the board of Line Group. Imagine a world, I don't know, 10 years from now, say, when we have an algorithm on the board of a FTSE 100 company. Imagine a world when that happens. And you might think that's a little bit mad, right? But Jack Ma, who was the founder and CEO and chair of Alibaba until recently, he said this maybe 10 years ago, that at some point, he expects that the Time magazine cover for the best CEO of the year very likely will be a robot it remembers better than you and it won't be angry with competition was the comment that he made and so why do i believe that this is a possible outcome the reality is that artificial intelligence algorithms are already outperforming us in many areas and maybe i should just explain what i mean by artificial intelligence there are a number of areas within artificial intelligence it's a broad term but let me try and define it so There's machine learning, which is one of the key areas, and it's really good for things like prediction, anomaly detection, classification, and I'll give you some examples of what I mean by that in a minute. The second area of artificial intelligence is around computer vision, so the ability to look at pictures and discern content from those. They could be things like cancer detection, for example, which will use a lot of um, computer vision. There's knowledge graphs, which is, if you think about Wikipedia, what Wikipedia is doing is helping to connect a number of entities. So the ability to understand those connections is another area of of AI, which is around knowledge graphs. And the fourth one is NLP, so natural language programming, which helps us with things like chatbots and virtual agents and understanding things like sentiment analysis. that's the sort of world of artificial intelligence. And I said that it's better AI algorithms is outperforming us, us as humans, as, as individuals in many, many dimensions. You're probably well aware of the things in gaming, in six-person poker, AI has won over many tournaments. You've seen the examples of chess. You will have seen many of the examples of Go, Alpha Go, and how that, how that has worked. But there are other areas that I would highlight. It is better at us in understanding language and context. So if you look at uh, translation and transcription, algorithms will outperform us quite significantly. In things like healthcare, it'll see things that doctors can't see. So you get 99% accuracy in detecting metastatic cancer, for example, which is a much higher rate than, than we as individuals achieve In the legal space, being able to look at forecasting opposing uh, counsel's arguments is another way in which we've seen this. We've seen AI beating lawyers uh, with 94% accuracy in NDA reviews versus 85% accuracy for humans. I could go on. I'll give you one one other example that I I thought was quite exciting is Christie's held an auction for a piece of art that was entirely created by artificial intelligence. And I don't know if anybody wants to guess how much that piece of art went for, but I will tell you that in a minute. But the other point I would make about artificial intelligence and humans is that, and people is maybe a warmer term to use than humans, is that actually the reality is that person and machines, so algorithms and us, outperform either the algorithm on its own or the person on its own. And I'll give you an example of this. So uh, person on its own, 75%, Detection rate of quite lengthy documents took 75 minutes for the person to do that, but they got a 75% accuracy rate. The algorithm, I got an 85% accuracy rate, but did it in five minutes. So went from 75 minutes to five minutes with a higher accuracy rate. But if you combine the person and the algorithm, that combined rate went up to 91%. So my perspective on artificial intelligence versus people is that actually that's a false distinction. The best examples are where we bring uh, the person and the algorithm together. That's where we're really gonna see the most valuable outcomes. So I will tell you, it was the the auction price went for $432,000, a piece of art that was entirely generated by an algorithm. And it is my view, as well as many others, that AI will be the most disruptive technology trend that we're gonna see in our lifetimes, and certainly for the next five to 10 years. You and I make about 35,000 decisions every day. 35,000 decisions, think about that. Uh, according to Cornell University, we make 200 decisions just on food. And so, you know, thinking about ways in which we can simplify our lives, simplify decision-making is one of the ways in which artificial intelligence is really going to help. And I particularly focus on you know ways in which we can link to business value. How do we use AI to improve revenue? And I know many of you might be running your own businesses and certainly involved in areas of commerce. How do we help help to drive revenue by things like understanding, uh, predicting churn, for example? How do we help to make our businesses and organizations more efficient, reducing costs by potentially using chatbots or virtual agents, for example? How do we help to improve customer experience by using AI? And how do we help to manage risk more effectively? So those are some of the areas that I think about. um, Those four value levers of revenue efficiency, customer experience, and risk management. The other thing, of course, that I should mention is that it all depends on data, right? 90% of the world's data was created in the last two years. Most of that is unstructured data data. In my view, we've seen exponential growth in data, but we're only just beginning to scratch the surface. We are going to move to what I call the era of hyper-exponential growth in data. The reason I say that is, for example, less than 10% of of the devices that can be connected to the internet, for example, are actually connected. And so if you think about 5G, if you think about edge computing, uh, we're going to see a massive explosion in data. If I had all of your pictures up and I could see you in a room, I would be able to pull an API from one of the big cloud providers. It would give me an index of your emotional state along five dimensions of the degree of interest that you were showing or boredom in in what I was saying. So imagine being able to detect the emotional signals to uh, play those back to me and to give me real-time feedback. Imagine the data challenge that, that that would pose. One of the problems that we need to fixate on, though, is is trust and making sure that we get the right balance between the value unlock and the ethics, the trust dimensions are also fairly balanced. So I'm going to take you through a couple of slides now, having made some of those bold statements about why I'm so excited about the world of artificial intelligence, and cover a couple of points to build on this. So hopefully you can see this. I've mentioned some of these points in passing a little bit, but The power of AI, if you look at some of the views from Kinsey, PwC, these aren't isolated ones, 16% boost to global GDP from artificial intelligence. Microsoft published some research that looked at organizations that were good at using AI at scale, and they delivered a better performance, business performance, 11.5% better business performance for those that really understood how to unlock the value of AI at scale. I mentioned the points about data already. i would also um, mentioned the point about it's the combination of some of these technologies. And of course, a lot of AI is embedded in the biggest cloud platforms of whether it's the Google one or the Microsoft one or Amazon or Salesforce or Cloudera. Of course, they're looking for the best AI machine learning capability that's embedded in there. Some of the things, of course, that we're doing in the midst of the pandemic, and I think there's more than one pandemic, there's, of course, the COVID-19 pandemic, but there's also a racial equality pandemic that has been playing out and certainly been heightened by, we can now say, the the murder of of George Floyd, given the verdict that came out this week. And of course, uh, there's also an economic pandemic that is linked to this at the moment, and in the midst of these pandemics, we have all seen the heightened importance of data and AI in helping to do this. And some of the work that we do at BT is to provide the government with insight into the extent to which people are respecting the guidelines on COVID and social distancing and staying at home and avoiding busy places like shopping centers and so on. So now those are some of the ways in which, which we can help. I'm gonna show you a video that brings to life um, some of the points that I've, that I've made. I'm gonna play it through, but let me just give you the context of, of this video. So this is Babylon, which is a sort of online health platform. And what I'm gonna show you is a video of a doctor and a patient. And the patient has already filled in, gone online and into the app, into the Babylon app, and filled out all their data. But they're now having a follow-up conversation with the doctor. And it's all done uh, virtually in the same way that you and I are interacting at the moment. And what you're, what you're going to see is that the entire conversation that the doctor and patient has is being transcribed by AI in real time. So if you look at the right of the screen, you'll see that entire conversation being transcribed. And so all of that data can be captured and stored. You You will understand why that would be important. It is using machine learning to look at diagnosing which of a number of possible problems this patient might be exhibiting. So you'll see the probabilities of those changing as we go through this. You will see it using computer vision to detect whether the patient is confused or not. And you will see some labels appearing that the doctor can see about the patient in real time. So I'm going to play the video now.
2: Hi Louise, my name is Dr. Kulthar Nice to meet you. Hi, nice to meet you too. So I can see you've completed our AI assessment. And from this, can I confirm that you've been having dizziness for a few months now with some hearing loss and also some ringing in your ears? Yeah, that's right. Okay. You look quite comfortable at the moment. So does the dizziness come and go?
3: Uh, Yeah, I don't
2: have it at the moment. Okay. And when you do get the dizziness, how long do the symptoms last?
3: Um, A few hours at a time, I'd say, probably.
2: Okay, and does changing the position of your head, bring on the dizziness. Sorry, what I mean to say is, do you get dizzy, for example, when you turn your head to look to one side, or when you turn over in bed?
3: Oh, Okay, no, no.
2: Have you felt sick or vomited when you get the dizziness? No. And is there anything else you wanted to tell me about your symptoms? For example, have you had any headache, any weakness, any numbness at all?
4: No. Okay.
2: According to our records, you also had glandular fever a few months ago. Has that all settled?
3: Yeah, yeah, that was awful. it
2: has gone now. Great. I mean, just looking at the blood test results from back then, they all came back normal as well. Great. So I would agree with our AI assessment. It looks like your symptoms are being caused by an ear condition called Meniere's disease. This has caused, causes a buildup of pressure within the balance centre. And that's what causes those awful dizzy episodes that you've been getting.
1: Okay, so hopefully you were able to see all of those elements that I mentioned, including the computer vision that was looking at whether she was confused or neutral. It was giving the doctor prompts about questions that he should ask based on the feedback that he was getting from the computer vision algorithm. And so this is, this is now. I mean, if you look at, I don't know if anybody picked up last week that Microsoft bid $20 billion for a company that looks a lot like Babylon in the healthcare space to do exactly the things that you've just seen there. So I thought I'd share a little bit about what we're doing in BT. So we are applying AI across our business in operations and services. It's really good at at thinking about optimization problems. So how do we optimize our network, for example? How do we use machine learning models to help with prediction, to predict uh, uh, churn, for example? Also, in terms of informing, so you know what might be the next best action for a salesperson or a client-focused individual to uh, reach out to? And, of course, a, a lot around automating. Here are some of the examples. So we look at things like uh, spam calls. So we're using technology that helps to identify those things. Looking at fault volumes. There are other ways in which we use this. So for things like anomaly detection and cybersecurity. You know that's another uh, big area that we, we we use artificial intelligence for a bit more detail in here i mentioned some of the areas that we're looking at um, it's really good at informing it's really good at predicting uh, workforce management so looking at uh, optimizing shift patterns service insights into our business with net promoter scores and a host of other things that you see here I mentioned anomaly detection nuisance callers also things that we might want to divert to a junk voice mailbox, for example, and a lot around optimizing our network and looking at inventory repair optimization as well. So lots that we're doing in our own business. I did mention that we need to be really careful about the world of AI, and we've seen many examples of artificial intelligence in the headlines of companies where things have gone wrong, where we've seen gender biased algorithms or racist algorithms developing so i thought i'd show you one more video before closing which is by uh, joy bulami she's a professor at mit and she's also a poet so i'm going to play this video she started what's called the algorithmic justice league and she's just helped put out a a film that you should certainly look at and and try to see if you can joy bulami is her name so let me play the video
4: My heart smiles as I bask in their legacies, knowing their lives have altered many destinies. In her eyes, I see my mother's poise. In her face, I glimpse my auntie's grace. In this case of deja vu, a 19th century question comes into view. In a time when Sojourner Truth asked, ain't I a woman? Today, we pose this question to new powers, making bets on artificial intelligence, hope towers, The Amazonians peek through windows blocking deep blues as faces increment scars, old burns, new urns, collecting data, chronicling our past, often forgetting to deal with gender, race, and class. Again, I ask, ain't I a woman? Face by face, the answers seem uncertain. Young and old, proud icons are dismissed. Can machines ever see my queens as I view them? Can machines ever see our grandmothers as we knew them? Ida B. Wells, data science pioneer, hanging facts, stacking stats on the lynching of humanity, teaching truths hidden in data, each entry and omission, a person worthy of respect. Shirley Chisholm unbought and embossed the first black congresswoman, but not the first to be misunderstood by machines well-versed in data-driven mistakes. Michelle Obama, unabashed and unafraid to wear her crown of history, yet her crown seems a mystery. The system's unsure of her hair, a wig, a buffon, a toupee, maybe not. Are there no words for our braids and our locks? The sunny skin and relaxed hair make Oprah the first lady. Even for her face, well-known, some algorithms falter echoing sentiments that strong women are men. We laugh, celebrating the successes of our sisters with Serena smiles. No label is worthy of our beauty. Thank you.
1: So, you know, that really, I think, brings to life, you know, the challenge and the issue that we have and for all the great things that we've seen about artificial intelligence outperforming us in many areas. And if you think about things like self-driving cars, again, that's another area of deep artificial intelligence in action. But at the same time, you have these algorithms that can't discern whether Michelle Obama is a woman or Serena Williams and the host of other ladies that you've seen there. So I end on, on that note. I am still a massive passionist and believer about the transformational ability of AI, but we we need to make sure that we're really c- careful about the data, the algorithms, and we need more women and people of diverse backgrounds building these algorithms, because if that happened, we probably wouldn't have some of the out- outputs that you've just seen. So thank you for listening to me. I'm Adrian Joseph, and this is the end of my Win Trade talk.
0: Thank you. Thank you so much, Adrian. That was amazing. Earlier on you talked about unicorns. Tell us a bit more about unicorns, not the kind I buy for my granddaughter.
4: <laughs> yes. Well I
0: could actually. Maybe I could at some point.
1: Yeah, so a unicorn is a is a startup business that gets to a billion valuation very rapidly. So uh, things like Airbnb that have scaled. You can think about Stripe. I mean look at look at Stripe and how remarkable and the scale with which you know things have progressed in an area of payments, right? And payments is a very you know traditional area, but they managed to find a space and to create a I think the valuation is about 60 billion now. Enormous to Irish brothers who created that. So that's what I mean when I say a unicorn is a business that scales and gets to a billion valuation really, really rapidly?
0: Well, I think WinTrade Global is a bit of a unicorn because we found a space or a niche that that there's so many women's networks now. It's really just finding a place or a platform for yourself. So I don't know if you can advise on how we reach the billion status to become a true unicorn, but that's... that's, (laughs) That's another um, discussion. That's another wind trade global talk for another time. But one question that I do want to ask you, what are the greatest risks? You've talked about some of them, but one example that absolutely shocked me, I think it was over the weekend. Did you hear about the Tesla accident over the weekend where a self-driving Tesla crashed into a tree and killed two passengers because they weren't driving? How does a company like Tesla prepare for something like that? They must have huge amounts of
1: insurance. I mean, self-driving cars has been described by Tim Cook, who is the chief exec of, of Apple, as the mother of all AI. Because if you think about what's happening, it brings together all of those patterns that I mentioned, of machine learning to do predictions, of computer vision to look at the world around you and to figure out you know, whether something's a tree or a person or a traffic light or whatever it is, and, and to do that in real time and at speed. And all of the patterns of, of NLP, of voice, all happen to, to be in there. You know, we are going to see accidents with self driving cars. We're at level four on self driving cars. So that means, you know, for relatively straight roads at relatively low speeds, they're already running, they're already working, they're there. Level five is going to be a big step. Where on busier roads, on bendier roads. I'm not sure we'll we'll get a self-driving car that's going to be able to navigate Covent Garden anytime soon or, you know, the streets of Paris. But there's no doubt in my mind that this is going to happen and that it'll be safer than us, that it'll perform better than, than us. And the reason I belie- believe that to be true is because I think the technology is going to do that. But I also, if you think about what happens when a self-driving car gets into an accident every other self-driving car learns from that. What happens if you or me get into an accident? Then if we're lucky, we learn from that experience, but it's not something that's necessarily shared across the whole of the self-driving car population. So I, I do generally believe in this. And by the way, we're gonna have, we have flying cars, you know, launching ready. <laughs> oh, no. um, we, will, we will have self-driving flying cars. And you might wow. think that this is a radical thing, right? But, but actually, Toyota have been invested in flying cars, General Motors um, that is led by a lady, Mary Barra, in the last couple of weeks showed a concept car, uh, a flying car that they're working on that brings the luxury of Cadillac and the technology of flying cars to the fore. So this is a reality now, flying cars is a reality now. Some of these companies have gone to unicorn status already and we're gonna see more, so I I do believe in it. But You did ask me about Alibaba, by the way. So Alibaba does a lot of what Amazon does, but it's based out of China. It's got a lot more scale than just in China now. So it's into the cloud market, it's in payments, it's in financial services. It does a brilliant job of, of combining in ways in which some of the other big tech companies haven't found so easy a number of applications to give us seamless engagement you know, as consumers. So a lot of young people that I've met from China are surprised that we use cash anymore. And one of the reasons for that is to do with Alibaba payments, for example. So Alibaba is one of these massive technology companies of Amazon, Google scale based out of China.
0: Mm, I've seen some videos Um China where you walk into a supermarket I think they scan your face or your eyes as you walk in and as you go and do your shopping they calculate you don't actually need an actual checkout person and by the time you get to the checkout all you have to do is put your card and it's all done to a certain extent so efficient but you yeah. know what jobs will there be for people and on that question You talked about the algorithms, but who programs the
1: algorithms? So we do, people. In general, that's a correct statement. But, you know, one of the things that is developing now is the democratization of artificial intelligence. And so many of the big technology companies are trying to figure out ways in which anybody, any citizen with virtually very little experience of of programming and coding can pick up some of these if you like, out of the box applications, apply their data to it, and outcomes solutions that improve some of the dimensions that, that I mentioned. So there is a big push towards the democratization of AI, which I think is exciting on the one hand, but also risky on the other, because we can't just always allow anybody, you know, we wouldn't give a baby a razor blade. You know, that's a crude, maybe sharp analogy, but. I think there's a degree of that sentiment that I would refer to in thinking about making sure that we have sufficient training for those individuals that we're, you know, we wouldn't give up maybe you wouldn't you wouldn't give my 16-year-old son the keys to the Ferrari. Maybe that's a better analogy.
0: Fantastic. All right, we have got Felix Klars. Felix, over to you.
4: First of all, thank you for your talk, Edwards. So informative. I'm the youngest entrepreneur I know. I'm 16. I'm based in Germany. And I have two companies operating in the 3D printing and augmented reality spaces. So what I really wanted to ask was, what should the younger generation of entrepreneurs be paying extra attention to regarding AI and data?
1: So 3D printing, another amazing space to be involved with, you know, AR and VR. Again, And I, it's the intersection of some of these technologies that I think is really, really exciting, right? I mean, imagine a world where you bring augmented reality quantum computing so that we can crunch much bigger data sets uh, much more rapidly, and we bring in the intelligence, of artificial intelligence, that unlocks the insight in those data assets at scale, then the world completely changes. So I would encourage you to think about, you know, those four patterns of AI that I mentioned. Sounds like computer vision will be, important for you to understand given the areas that you're interested in sounds like i mean machine learning is what underpins a lot of the ai patterns right so machine learning would be you know an area that i would look at first um, if i were you um or any other any other any other young person but you know there's for me there's no shortage of opportunity i think the thing i would just advise anybody is to understand the market challenge you know the customer challenge the organizational challenge first and then figure out how does the technology help to solve those things. So focus on real opportunities and problems and then connect the art to the possible. I think that's where the magic happens. Connect the art to the possible to real world opportunities and challenges. And I think that's something that some of the technology companies have done. So thank okay. you for the question. Thank you.
0: Okay, let's next go to Avinda.
3: Hello. I'm going to play devil's advocate here because, you know, being a lawyer, there's no doubt AI will transform the way we live our life in the next decade. But my concern is at what human cost. Technology is developing a lot faster than the law around it. And we appear to have more acceptance to technology delivering services or arguing cases than gender parity and racial bias. It is encouraging that this is being discussed and recognized, which I note that you pointed out in your presentation. But again, at what human cost? You know, there are many issues around human rights, ethics, and lack of transparency and accountability, and how AI will be used, and the current rights that we enjoy to privacy. Is there an opportunity for public consultation on the changes and the impact of AI on our everyday
1: lives? so yes i mean i mentioned i sit on the ai council uh, for the uk and of course in the in a uk context we have the center for data ethics cdei we have the alan turing institute which heavily focuses on this area and many 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 other organizations so you're right there are guidelines i believe that some of those guidelines are going to turn into regulation if we don't see more progress in some areas than we have and i gave some examples on the video of, of where things have gone wrong. When I think about examples, I think about three levels of bias, right? So there's bias in the data, so we need to check for that. There's bias in the algorithms, potentially, and there's bias in the individuals that are building these algorithms. And I would argue that if we had you know better representation of gender and ethnicity and other forms of diversity, that we would have less negative consequences. So. There are a couple of things there, getting better representation, as you mentioned. I do believe that we will see guidelines turn into regs. Beyond the regs, you know, things like ethics is really important. And so part of my role at the home office was to sit on an, an ethics board to look at data and, and AI and the ethics of the, the types of use cases that would be appropriate. So there are a number of things that we can put into place. There, there are about seven different guidelines around transparency, fairness, ethical use of data that sort of internationally have been aligned around that help us to to keep safe. But that risk is there, it, it will continue to be. And of course, you mentioned the human cost. Some jobs will be displaced, maybe 10% entirely. And I think every job will be affected, i.e. that AI will impact it. But I would also argue that a lot of the work that we do was not designed for humans and was really designed for machines. And that's where I think we should focus. And it's the human and the machine that I think will give us the best results in the end.
0: All right, we have Jan. Adrian, good afternoon. I know that people fear AI and the future a little bit because there are going to be quite a lot of jobs that go via automation. But there's also the opportunity for a lot of new jobs that will be created that are not here today. What advice would you give to parents with children who are coming through the school system in terms of how do we help our children to make sure they are future-proof with the right skills, etc.?
1: But I think about your point about the impact on jobs. I, th- I see three impacts. They all begin with A. One is full automation. You know, some jobs will be fully automated. I think probably less than ten percent. Second A is augmentation. So. I think every job at the skill level will be impacted by AI. There'll be things in the job that I do, that all of us do, that we can take away, that that you know that can be automated and frees up time to do other things. And the third one is is these additional uh, jobs. There'll be new things that are coming through. Things like AI ethicists. When we think about AI, we think about the technology side of, of AI. We need to think about the behavioral, the social as well. And so I was, I would see a lot of jobs happening in that space. To your question about parents, and particularly in some of the communities that I see represented on the call here, what I hear from some of the students that I talk to is that their parents give them three choices. You can be a doctor, a lawyer, or an accountant. Nowhere does AI feature there, or technology, or digital, right? And so I would just say to parents, take a wider lens, read up on the topic. The reality is that if you work for a technology company or in the space, you're going to get better food because you get free food at these big companies, these big technology companies. You're gonna have a lot of fun, you know, cause they've got igloos and spirals and all sorts of things. But the third F is funds. You're gonna make 20% more than you would make in many other career choices. And I'm, I'm not saying that doctors, uh, lawyers, accountants, brilliant careers, love them. But I'm saying to the parents, please take a wider lens. And in the midst of this pandemic, we have seen how much more important data and digital, and AI has become, and will continue to. Thank you, John.
4: So um,
0: hi, Adrian. What a brilliant hi. presentation. Thank you so much. Um, you. My question really is about AI and music. My question really <laughs> is that for young people who have an avid interest in this field, how can AI, can they find, can they increase their interest so that they make those kind of career choices with the aid of AI and music for the future?
1: I mean, I, I'm not sure that there are many places that AI doesn't have application to, but music is certainly one of the, the big areas. And, mm-hmm. you know, we saw a Watson Beat-inspired song hit the top four on the charts, you know, some some years ago, right? So there's no doubt, sort in my mind, and, and it's in, in reality out there. I mean, I would encourage anyone that has an interest in this to go onto YouTube to do a course, right? look at all the application i mean in our, our everyday lives we're using ai right we're just not aware of it and we yeah. have been for many many years if you think about your spam filters on your email yeah. you know how's it making decisions about what put into spam well it's actually using machine learning techniques to decide make those decisions right if you think about the search engine that you use if you think about the recommendation engine that sits in amazon and by the way you know it's reputed at some about 35 percent of amazon's e-commerce revenue comes from the recommendation engine which is is run by an algorithm, right? That is powered by an algorithm. So I would just, you know, observe that in our everyday lives, all around us, this is happening, it's in use, it's safe. I would encourage people to do a you know, look at Coursera or Udemy or other areas, to to do a course, to jump in, get familiar with it. And don't don't be scared, but be careful. I mean I would look at the Alan Turing Institute. This is a world class, it's funded by by the UK that is doing brilliant, brilliant work across the spectrum of AI and a lot of work in safe, ethical, trustworthy use of, of AI. So there are many, many sources like that, Salome, that I would you know, urge you and your, your son to look at. So thank you for the question.
4: Our last
0: person is Ingrid Collins. As algorithms on social
3: sites select what to present to me on pages such as Facebook, and so it reinforces my prejudices and encourages the divisions, therefore, in society. How do you see algorithms being used in uniting rather than dividing society as it is very much at the moment?
1: Yes, the way in which some of these models work is to look at your preferences, to then make decisions about the types of connections or content or interest that it believes, and then that's sort of uh, reinforcing in some respects. I, I also see AI yeah, as a force for good in a way that is counter to that. So for example, you know, I can use artificial intelligence to look at one of my job descriptions and tell me whether or not it is too male-focused because of the words that are used in my JD. I can use, as some companies are, um, they're using you know, algorithms to do their interviews and pre-screening checks on people that are interested in in working with them. And I remember listening to a story about Unilever, who you know how to get through three algorithms before you met a real person at Unilever if you're applying for a job. And it was more efficient, you know, that was not so surprising, but it delivered the best diversity that they had achieved previously. So there are many ways in which I believe we can use and are using artificial intelligence as a force for good that, counter some of the biases that may exist that may be reinforced by by certain types of algorithms that you mentioned ingrid
0: so adrian we've had
1: another amazing talk loved all the questions and i learned some stuff too so thank you yvonne and team for doing this really really appreciate thank you it.
0: thank you adrian, adrian.